Hello and welcome to DE Classified, a podcast showcasing the history of destroyer escorts. Each month, a member of the USS Slater's education crew will highlight a specific destroyer escort and share the stories of the sailors who served aboard these trim but deadly ships. My name is Liam Mitchell. Today, we're going to DE Classify USS Mitchell, DE 43. My name is Liam Mitchell. I am a tour guide and duty officer with the education crew here at USS Slater, currently serving in my third season. I am a local history student with a family background in naval service and a deep admiration for American military history. Today, we're going to DE classify USS Mitchell, DE 43, an Everts class destroyer escort. The ship was named in honor of Ensign Albert E. Mitchell. A young sailor from Seattle was killed in action June 1942. Prior to the war, Albert attended and graduated from the University of Washington, but then enlisted in the Navy on December 20, 1940. After attending flight training at Seattle and Corpus Christi, he was designated a naval aviator and assigned to Patrol Squadron 42. On June 4, 1942, Albert Mitchell was killed in action somewhere over the Unamak Pass, located between Unamak and Akun Islands in the Aleutian Archipelago of Alaska. On this day, a small Japanese stripe group invaded the Aleutian Islands in an attempt to draw American forces away from the larger invasion of Midway near Hawaii. Although the American forces were ultimately not fooled by this, the American troops stationed on the Aleutian Islands were still tasked with their defense. This battle will go on to be known as the Battle of Dutch Harbor. It marked the first aerial attack on the continental United States and the second time that the continental United States was bombed by someone working for a foreign power. After his death, Albert Mitchell was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for, quote, extraordinary achievement while participating in aerial flight. His commendation would go on to say that, although he himself was killed when his plane crashed, he had made possible the capture of a Mitsubishi fighter, which provided new and invaluable information on this type of enemy aircraft. Now, as I mentioned earlier, USS Mitchell is an Everts-class destroyer escort. You may remember from last month's episode that this class was the first type of destroyer escort to enter service, early in 1943. Named for the lead ship in the class, USS Everts DE-5, Everts-class destroyer escorts were the shortest of all destroyer escort classes and the only class that did not carry torpedo tubes as built. Later classes of destroyer escorts would be vast improvements on both the design and effectiveness of the ships. USS Mitchell was laid down on January 12, 1943 at the Puget Sound Naval Shipyard at Bremerton, Washington. Now this shipyard was originally constructed during World War I and greatly expanded during World War II, and was instrumental in the construction and repairing of ships facing battle in the Pacific. Now interestingly, the shipyard is still active today. It provides the Navy with maintenance, modernization, and technical and logistic support, and employs roughly 14,000 people. Now let's take a look at the specifications of the ship. 
As an Everts-class destroyer escort, Mitchell was a diesel-electric ship capable of producing upwards of 6,000 ship horsepower, with a maximum speed of about 21 knots, or roughly 24 miles per hour. At 289 feet and 5 inches long, a beam of 35 feet and 1 inch, and a draft of 11 feet and 10 inches, it had a displacement of only 1,436 long tons. This, of course, seems like a large number to those who don't know too much about naval ships. However, by comparison, USS Missouri, the flagship of the Third Fleet that Mitchell would later be assigned to, was a battleship with a displacement of 57,540 long tons. This demonstrates the extremely small size of destroyer escorts, especially among ocean-going warships of World War II. On deck, USS Mitchell was equipped with three 3-inch 50-caliber dual-purpose guns, capable of firing on both aircraft and land targets, as well as one quad 1.1-inch 75-caliber AA gun, and nine 20mm AA guns for additional anti-aircraft defense. To combat enemy submarines, USS Mitchell came equipped with one forward-firing hedgehog projector, capable of firing 24 hedgehog rounds at once. It also had eight depth charge projectors and two depth charge tracks located on the fantail of the ship. This set of weaponry made the Mitchell and other destroyer escort ships of World War II fierce fighters against enemy aircraft and submarines. On November 17, 1943, USS Mitchell was finally commissioned and assigned to Operational Training Command Pacific Fleet with Lieutenant Commander M.S. Erdahl in command. This DE is 60 days in construction, another two months in fitting out. Built in half the time of a destroyer, at half the cost, a DE can do everything a DD could do to guard a convoy. And she's really built for the job. While leaving the Seattle Bay area, USS Mitchell passed through the Strait of Juan de Fuca, commonly known as the Graveyard of the Pacific. Unpredictable weather patterns, heavy fog, shifting sandbars, tidal rips, and rocky shorelines have resulted in the sinking of more than 2,000 ships since the 18th century here in the Strait of Juan de Fuca. So far, over 700 lives have been recorded lost. Many of these wrecks are still visible in the bay. J.K. Carpenter, executive officer of the Mitchell at time of commissioning and future skipper, would later describe the, quote, horrors of the strait, remarking that only few of the then neophyte sailors could lay claim to not being sick. Now, it is important to note that during my research for this podcast, I came across the complete Mitchell War History transcript, written by J.K. Carpenter in 1945, after the ship's return to the United States. If you wish to view this document for yourself, it is linked on our website at ussslater.org. As I mentioned earlier, Carpenter was assigned to USS Mitchell as executive officer upon the ship's commissioning in 1943. Before Mitchell left for shakedown training, Lieutenant Commander M.S. Erdahl fell ill and was transferred to a U.S. naval hospital on the West Coast. It was at this time that Carpenter first took temporary command, before relinquishing duty on December 28th. He would later assume temporary command again in April 1944, 
until being promoted and told to assume full command of Mitchell in May 1944. Now, Carpenter's war history of the Mitchell is the most complete documentation of the ship and crew's exploits in the Pacific, and is the main source of information for this episode of DE Classified. While underway for shakedown training to San Diego, J.K. Carpenter remarked that they faced a, quote, three-week nightmare of intensive training. Now, for those who don't know, shakedown is considered the trial run of a ship, where the crew finally learns their individual roles on the ship and gets hands-on experience in every aspect of naval life for the first time. Training includes anti-submarine warfare, CIC work, formation steaming, emergency drills, battle stations, changing and revising the watch, and much more. A shakedown cruise is essential to the effective operation of a ship post-commissioning and provides insight into the compatibility of the crew and their knowledge of their impressive naval vessel. After completion of shakedown, Mitchell arrived in San Diego Harbor, and the crew received a very quick liberty. It was soon assigned to what is known as the Battle of San Clemente. This fictitious battle was, in reality, a training exercise in the Channel Islands off the coast of Los Angeles. It served as a sort of dress rehearsal for the Allied invasion of the Marshall Islands. Beginning in January 1944, Mitchell was assigned to the transport screen of the mock invasion fleet of San Clemente and trained with the destroyers, battleships, cruisers, and carriers that would later go on to make history in the Pacific. Acquired by the Navy in 1934, San Clemente Island served vital functions for the Navy in wartime, and actually continues to do so today. It is the only remaining, quote, ship-to-shore live-firing range, and serves as the center of the San Clemente Island Range Complex, which covers an area of 2,620 square nautical miles. It is still an active sonar base with a simulated city for elite commando training, as well as a rocket test facility and an auxiliary air base that serves the U.S. Navy, Air Force, and Coast Guard. Additionally, it is one of several locations throughout the country where Navy SEALs are trained. On February 8, 1944, USS Mitchell departed for Pearl Harbor with eight Liberty ships. This would be the official beginning of Mitchell's war service. In the Mitchell War history, J.K. Carpenter remarks that, quote, We were on our way for good, though we didn't realize it then. Mitchell remained in Pearl for two months, gaining practical experience with Allied submarine squadrons, learning the intricacies of anti-submarine warfare. During this time, the commanding officer of Mitchell, Lieutenant Commander Erdahl, fell ill again, and command of the ship was once again temporarily transferred to Lieutenant Commander J.K. Carpenter, as I mentioned earlier. It was here, on May 13, 1944, that Lieutenant Commander Carpenter was finally ordered to assume full command of Mitchell. He would remain in this capacity until the end of the war. On June 3, 1944, Mitchell was assigned to the 5th Fleet off Guam under Admiral Raymond Spruance. You may recognize that name from the annals of the Battle of Midway. On that faithful day, Admiral Spruance commanded Task Force 16, which was comprised of carriers Enterprise and Hornet, as well as the cruisers Salt Lake City and Northampton, and over half a dozen destroyers. 
Spruance led the American victory over the invading Japanese forces at Midway, and Spruance and his task force would later go on to be one of the most storied forces of World War II. Later, as commander of the 5th Fleet, Admiral Spruance led the Marianas Campaign, the Iwo Jima Campaign, and the Okinawa Campaign. This fleet would also be responsible for the sinking of the massive Japanese battleship Yamato in April 1945. Now, as part of the 5th Fleet, USS Mitchell was in charge of escorting fleet tankers across the operating area and performing screening duty for the fleet. During this time, Mitchell and the other destroyer escort with the fleet were the subjects of a now infamous radio call, originating from one of the Essex-class carriers. An officer on board that carrier came across the radio and asked, quote, What the hell are those two very small boys doing out here? At that time, Mitchell was far out beyond the normal range of destroyer escorts in deep waters west of Guam, just after the Battle of the Philippine Sea. During these operations, Mitchell could actually see the battle raging in the distance. For its support role in the evasion here, Mitchell earned its first battle star. On June 28, 1944, Mitchell escorted an oiler to Agat Bay, Guam, this would actually be the closest that Mitchell would ever get to physical combat, although they didn't know it then. The crew looked on as cruisers and destroyers shelled the beach and ridge above, with dive bombers making runs over the Oro Peninsula. Known as the Second Battle of Guam, it resulted in the capture of the island from Japanese forces. Guam had been a United States territory since 1898, when it was ceded to the U.S. from Spain, as a result of the Spanish-American War. Japan had previously captured the island on December 8, 1941, just one day after the attacks on Pearl Harbor. As a result of its escort duties during the Second Battle of Guam, Mitchell then received its second battle star. The following months proved quieter for Mitchell and crew. She performed refueling duties for hunter-killer groups off Enowetak Atoll, located in the Marshall Islands. While in Enowetak, the crew had their first chance at liberty since arriving in the Pacific Theater. They received their pay, enjoyed the experiences of the island, and according to some sources, ate enough ice cream to last the remainder of the war. Finally departing in mid-August, Mitchell was reassigned to the 3rd Fleet Logistics Support Group as part of a screen for oilers and escort carriers. On August 30th, 1944, Mitchell achieved an infamous feat that all sailors look forward to while on its way to the Admiralty Islands. That would be crossing the equator into the Southern Hemisphere. Now for those who may not know, when this happens, a ceremony is held on deck to honor both the crew and Neptunus Rex, also known as King Neptune, ancient Roman god of the sea. Now, prior to crossing the equator, a sailor is colloquially referred to as a polywog. But, during this ceremony, all polywogs are quote-unquote promoted into shellbacks and formally welcomed into Neptune's realm. Although it is constantly in step with progress, our Navy still observes the old and glorious traditions of the sea handed down by the brave and hardy seafaring men who fought to obtain and maintain our democracy. 
In memory of the cause for which these men lived and died, a modern man-o-war pauses for a brief time, and in a traditional manner the ship is dressed from stem to stern with flags as a salute to the symbol of liberty which all true Americans love and cherish. And having paused, she once again puts to sea to take her place as a unit of the United States fleet headed southward to equatorial waters. After a journey of days, the fleet approaches the boundaries of the domain of Neptunus Rex. Though the weather is tropical, pollywogs in heavy winter clothing and using boxing gloves for mittens are detailed to keep a sharp lookout for Davy Jones, the royal emissary. Shellbacks search the ship, rounding up all rebellious pollywogs, for these rebels must be thoroughly subdued and taught to show due respect to his majesty, King Neptune, when he arrives on the morrow. It looks as though the shellbacks have a tough job on their hands, but the methods are effective. Before the long day ends, the pollywogs will be too weary and worn to offer further trouble. At dusk, the lookouts report that Davy Jones is approaching the ship, and the welcoming committee of shellbacks assembles. Davy Jones, with his royal retinue of deputies, boards the ship, and the subdued pollywogs and landlubbers are held in readiness by the shellbacks for his royal pleasure. A few of the pollywogs are still unruly and must be handcuffed. The captain of the ship greets and welcomes Davy Jones with his retainers, deputies of His Majesty King Neptune. Davy Jones reads a proclamation from His Majesty stating that all pollywogs and landlubbers must be initiated into the mysteries of the deep before the end of another day. His deputies take their stations and from well-filled bags produce royal subpoenas to issue to all pollywogs and landlubbers. These subpoenas carry royal orders to appear before His Majesty King Neptune for initiation when he boards the ship in the morning. Dawn breaks. The great day is at hand. Shellbacks are exuberant with expectation, the pollywogs apprehensive with misgivings. His Majesty King Neptune, ruler of the deep, who recognizes no rank among pollywogs, arrives on board to receive a salute from pollywog junior officers. His royal retinue of strange denizens of the deep leave their seaweed homes and threaten the pollywogs with leers of sadistic glee. Through guards of honor, King Neptune with his retinue proceeds to a specially constructed platform where the captain, as senior representative of the Shellbacks, bids them a hearty welcome. King Neptune receives command of the ship and immediately orders that his flag, the Jolly Roger, be hoisted as a warning to all seafaring men. The ancient ruler of the deep goes modern. With a microphone, he welcomes all shellbacks to his domain, warning each and every pollywog that he intends to be as severe as he can for their offense of entering his domain. But if during their ordeal they prove themselves to be true men of the sea, he will be glad to welcome and acknowledge them as tried and trusty shellbacks. Accompanied by the ship's band, His Majesty inspects the ship while his royal retainers prepare the infernal machines and search all nooks and corners to ascertain that no pollywogs are trying to escape the pleasure of his royal wrath. (laughs) 
While other shellbacks look on, King Neptune complains that the presence of so many landlubbers is disagreeable and orders all pollywogs, lounge lizards, freshwater sailors, and amateur mermaid chasers to be brought before him. He mounts the throne and his royal retainers assemble. Queen Amphitrite, mistress of the sea, fairest of the sea flappers, and ruler of the mermaids. The royal navigator, charter of ocean breezes, controller of sea currents, and keeper of the keys to Davy Jones' locker. Royal police who search the seven seas for pollywogs. Royal doctors, originators of seasickness. The royal undertaker who views the pollywogs with malevolent satisfaction. Royal guards who have the difficult task of protecting the Queen's mermaids. The spectacle of King Neptune on his throne with his grim retainers assembled close about him is a sight pollywogs never forget. Pollywogs of the ship's crew present their credentials and these unfortunate pollywogs of lesser rank get the works. Many of the pollywogs lose their heads, but never in this manner, for this wicked-looking blade is only wood. The hot seat where pollywogs come in contact with the electric eel and the indicator registers their manliness. Under the tender ministrations of the royal doctors, the pollywogs on the operating table feel the caress of the electric knife, suffer the prods of probing thumbs, and receive pungent and bitter pills of cayenne pepper to warm their innards. After having been warmed up by the electric chair, the electric knife, and the hot pepper pills, the pollywogs need cooling, plenty of cooling, and do they get it? Just watch. Slapdash shaves are the order of the day. The royal barbers waste no time. In Queen Amphitrite's bath, freshwater pollywogs are baptized in brine. It looks rough, but it's all in fun and no one gets hurt. After the cooling brine, a bit of warmth is added. The ordeal is almost over. Royal fragilators, with well-placed wallops to tender stern sheets, harass the luckly pollywogs who run the gauntlet to emerge at the end as full-fledged shellbacks, who have earned the right to receive from King Neptune one of his royal certificates to be treasured for a lifetime and shown to envious pollywogs and landlubbers. Each new shellback eagerly awaits the day when he too will have the opportunity to initiate pollywogs into the mysteries of the deep. Now, over the course of its lifetime, Mitchell would cross the equator numerous times, making frequent trips to and from Manus, an island in the Admiralty Islands. In September 1944, Mitchell operated with the Third Fleet off Palau in the Mariana Islands. During this time, numerous enemy aircraft appeared on radar, and battle stations were called every time, although, fortunately, no aircraft ever attacked. Similarly, Sonar picked up many contacts, and numerous objects resembling periscopes were seen by the crew. But, again, 
no enemy submarines attempted an attack. Now this pattern would repeat for Mitchell over the coming months. Sightings, contacts, and possible fights were an almost everyday occurrence at the height of operations in the Pacific Theater, with Japanese forces ever-present and never far away. In spite of these contacts, Mitchell proceeded in its refueling duties with Task Group 38, now located northeast of the island of Luzon in the Philippines. In November 1944, Mitchell made birth at Ulithi Atoll, one of the numerous atolls that makes up the Caroline Islands. Now, at this time, Ulithi Atoll was actually the largest naval base in the Pacific. The island was reclaimed by the Americans in September 1944, and soon they determined that around 700 ships could fit inside the central harbor. Now, this number actually far surpasses the capacity of even Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. Navy films show elements of Admiral Roy A. Spruance's 5th Fleet resting at anchor in the lagoon at Ulithi Atoll. Navy advices indicate this is the greatest collection of U.S. fighting and cargo ships ever assembled in one place. Ulithi Atoll consists of a cluster of 34 tiny islands surrounded by a narrow coral reef. It lies 105 statute miles from Japanese-held Yap and 1,777 miles from Tokyo itself. After relocating the local islanders to a safer, out-of-the-way island, construction began on a series of piers all along the atoll, built from gravel and sand with metal rods driven deep into the coral and massive ropes attached to the ends. And over the next few months, hundreds of ships began docking. First, USS Ajax, a repair ship, was relocated to inside the harbor to be utilized by anyone on or visiting the base who needed special parts made in a special metal fabrication shop. Now, if your ship needed repairs beyond the scope of a repair ship, you could pull into one of the numerous floating dry docks, which were capable of lifting whole ships out of the water and fixing them quickly. USS Abitan, a distilling ship, was assigned to the vital job of cooking baked beans, pies, and other meals for all the men on the island. Soon, a barge with a very special purpose was moored in the bay. It was an ice cream barge, capable of producing up to 500 gallons of ice cream per shift. Now, for recreation, baseball fields, outdoor theaters, and other activities were built on the island of Mogmog, on the north side of Ulithi Atoll. It was here that the crew of the Mitchell found themselves that November, taking full advantage of everything the island had to offer. Now, bases like Ulithi provided a much-needed respite for the men fighting this brutal war. Life at sea was harsh, extremely difficult, and dangerous even in peacetime. With the added threat of surprise attack by Japanese submarines and kamikazes, Stress levels were constantly raised, and some men would inevitably break. It was here on Ulithi Atoll that the men could finally unwind, relax, and have some fun, before heading back out to sea to face the trials of war once again. Now Mitchell finished out 1944 by screening ships back northeast of the island of Luzon and sinking some mines. On December 3rd, 1944, Mitchell actually struck a whale while underway. Now this whale seriously damaged her underwater sound equipment, and Mitchell was forced to return to Alethe for repairs in that dry dock. 
Afterwards, Mitchell briefly had towing test duty with USS Wilkes-Barre, followed by escort duty for USS Kwajalein, an escort carrier. Now, Mitchell and Kwajalein actually spent Christmas singing carols together over the voice radio, and they even sent gifts of ice cream and cookies to each other. In the words of Lieutenant Commander J.K. Carpenter, this began a fine friendship between the two ships. The year 1945 began, and Mitchell resumed her duties in the Philippine Sea, performing screening duty with the refueling groups once again. Mitchell was then reassigned back to the 5th Fleet Logistics Group in February, where it joined Task Force 58 and performed numerous jobs of passing mail and personnel while at sea. Mitchell performed these duties quite close to the invasion of Iwo Jima. Lieutenant Commander Carpenter stated that they, quote, enjoyed watching the flights of B-29s pass overhead on their way to Japan. Now, the general alarm did sound a few times during this period, but again, no contacts closed. Over the next few months, Mitchell made several more trips to Ulithi, and there they caught their first glimpse of the British Royal Navy, which seemed to both excite and inspire the men on board. In March 1945, Mitchell headed north to rendezvous with the rest of the task group and began operations off the coast of Okinawa in support of the American invasion. Mitchell continued to screen ships and sink mines, a job it was all too familiar with by this point in the war. Now, April 1945 brought the somber news of the death of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. To honor him, the flag aboard Mitchell was lowered to half-mast and stayed there for 30 days. Now, May 1945, however, brought news of great joy to the men. Of course, this is when Nazi Germany had finally surrendered in Europe. Now, although this surrender was a whole world away and in no real way affected the crew in the Pacific, they, of course, were bolstered by this news and were reinvigorated in their quest to finally end the war in the Pacific. Mitchell continued to sink mines and screen ships and made more trips between Okinawa and Ulithi Atoll. In June 1945, Mitchell embarked on a new, more exciting adventure than the ones of months previous. Reassigned to the 7th Fleet in Leyte Gulf, she sailed across the Philippines and engaged in the invasion of Borneo in Indonesia, along with the rest of the Allied fleet, including British and Australian forces as well. Now, the largest island of Indonesia, Borneo is filled with thick jungle and exotic wildlife, which makes penetrating the interior difficult. Although conquered by the Japanese in March of 1942, the Allied forces were able to quickly and decisively recapture the island by August 1945. Mitchell was instrumental in assisting in operations in the Makassar Strait, which is a stretch of water that separates the island of Borneo from the island of Sulawesi in the east. Lieutenant Commander J.K. Carpenter noted that the crew noticed many native canoes filled with local families, all fleeing the bombings for the safety of the Celebes Islands to the north. July 1945 brought even more excitement to the crew. Reassigned to Leyte Gulf and the Third Fleet, Mitchell assisted in the bombing of mainland Japan. Now, it never fired its own weapons, but it operated with Task Force 38 and engaged in refueling runs, transfer pilots, and screening duty. J.K. Carpenter wrote that the crew, quote, 
Watch the B-29s and the 3rd Fleet planes continue their deadly work. Now in August, the crew listened to the radio in stunned amazement at the news of the atomic bombings in Japan. Finally, on August 15, 1945, the crew heard the news they've been waiting for so long. Orders were received to cease all offensive operations against Japanese forces. Japan had surrendered. The crew cheered and celebrated, and it was said that there was never a happier moment on deck than that night. In August, Mitchell was transferred to the operating area of Japan, and on September 2nd was, quote, lucky enough to be sent to Tokyo Bay right after the final surrender ceremony. On September 13th, Mitchell received orders to return to the West Coast for decommissioning via Pearl Harbor which brought even more happiness to the crew. Along the way, Mitchell picked up more U.S.-bound passengers and provisions for the last time at Ulithi. Capital ships of the mighty and victorious U.S. 3rd Fleet, led by Admiral Bull Halsey's flagship, the South Dakota, leave Pearl Harbor homeward bound. Past Diamond Head and out into the Pacific, they sail in line with thousands upon thousands of veteran fighting men aboard. The war in the Pacific is over, a war which the men and planes and ships of the Navy fought so well to bring victory for the United Nations. Now, Lieutenant Commander J.K. Carpenter ends his war history with a poignant and moving paragraph. He says, quote, it's been over 15 months since we've seen Pearl and nearly 20 out of the States. The officers and the men are proud of her, proud of the job she's done. She sank no submarines and shot down no planes, but she stayed out there and she did the job. She's a good ship, the Mitchell. Now the emotion behind J.K. Carpenter's words are apparent and highlight the massive significance these ships had to the sailors. Although themselves small and always in a support role, the men were proud of their little tin can destroyer escort and proud of each other for the hard work that they've done. Every sailor earned their trip home a hundred times over, and finally the reward was being paid. USS Mitchell earned an impressive nine battle stars for her supportive role in some of the most important battles of the Pacific Theater. Now this number of battle stars is almost unheard of for destroyer escorts. And again, it highlights the extreme effort that the crew of the Mitchell put into each and every engagement. She was instrumental in keeping the bigger warships going, and her efforts saved the lives of countless sailors in the Pacific. Now, although decommissioned and sold for scrap on December 29th, 1945, the history of USS Mitchell is one that must be remembered for her crucial role in the Pacific Theater. Like all destroyer escorts, Mitchell was a very small cog in the massive war machine of the US military in World War II. It is admittedly very easy to overlook. For most people, it's much more exciting to study the war histories of large, infamous ships like the Missouri or the Enterprise. But here at the Destroyer Escort Historical Museum, we believe strongly in preserving the history of these destroyer escorts and educating all who will listen about their fantastic histories.
Thank you for listening to DE Classified. This podcast is brought to you by the Destroyer Escort Historical Museum aboard USS Slater. You can find a transcript of this episode, accompanying the photos, and a bibliography at ussslater.org slash declassified. I am Liam Mitchell, and I hope you join us next month to DE Classify USS Leopold. <laughs>